last year sometime, we began a series um, called Seeing Jesus Through the Shadows, where the intention is that we work our way through the book of Hebrews bit by bit. So if you grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, uh, we're going to jump back into it this year again. We're up to Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, we're going to spend a bit of time this morning just coming back to a very mysterious and somewhat obscure character in the Bible. And um, I alternate in pronouncing his name Melchizedek or Melchizedek. Um, I can never seem to settle on one. So I'll switch between the two. I'm talking about the same guy. Um, a guy that I know who I've sort of interacted a little bit with online. Um, he had a coffee mug made up for himself uh, because of one of his favourite sayings when he comes across something that's very bizarre. He says, sweet mother of Melchizedek. <laughs> it's like a Christian version of swearing. It's like, not really. But um, we're going to have a look at Melchizedek a little bit this morning. But before we dive into the sort of passage we're going to look at, which is Hebrews 7, if you want to find Hebrews 7, you can. Before we dive into this passage in Hebrews 7, I want to tie it back to something that we've looked at as we finished off this series last time we were looking at it. But I want to tie it back into um, what's really, I think, it's mooring post. You know what a mooring post is? Those of you who've done a bit of boating before or... Um, it's something you tie off to, okay? something that you secure yourself to. I want to tie back the passage that we're going to look at in Hebrews 7 back to, I think, what is its mooring post back in chapter 6. Because if we don't, I think we're in danger of going adrift. Because the Bible is not primarily provided to us for our information, Though there is a lot we can learn from it. So if you were to leave today and say, wow, I learned so much about Melchizedek today. Then I failed as a preacher. Because you would have had your mind fed, but your soul would be misled. We can't settle solely for information. Don't settle for lectures on the Bible. Because it is entirely possible to know much of God, but him to remain a stranger to you. And I think that's possibly one of the greatest tragedies of our age. People who know of God, but he remains a stranger to them. So I want to tie chapter 7, at least the passage we're going to look at. We won't be looking at all of chapter 7, but we're going to look at chapter 7 verses 1 through 10. Just the first 10 verses is what we're going to be focusing on today. But before we read that, I want to tie it back into chapter 6. I think for good reason, because I believe the writer does also. The writer of the book of Hebrews. There's a distinct connection that he makes in chapter 6 between these three things, hope, Jesus, and Melchizedek. So read with me from Hebrews chapter 6, 
verse 19, just the last two verses of that chapter. It says this, I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's our mooring post. Let's just recap the logic. We, we did talk about this the last time, but that was last year. A lot's happened in 2020. I'll forgive you if you don't remember. Let's just recap the logic. First thing you see in those two verses, hope is an anchor for the soul, right? We love that one. That's a coffee cup mug, that one. Um, that's one of those verses that we love to print off and put on plaques. Hang on the back of your toilet door or wherever you like to put your plaques. Hope is an anchor for the soul. Hope anchors us as an immovable and comforting certainty. There are two things about hope, isn't it? Hope is immovable. Hope is an anchor, but hope is comforting to us. That's the first thing that we can see in those two verses. Second thing is that where is this hope anchored? Where is it anchored, right? Well, it's anchored within the sanctuary, behind the curtain or behind the veil. It's, it's anchored in what is now the accessible character and personhood of God. That's the... That's the imagery that we get there about the sanctuary and the, the curtain, um, the, the temple that all of Israel was, would come to to worship. And there was accessible places for different people. There was the court of the Gentiles where if you were not an Israelite and you still wanted to worship the one true and living God, well, you could go to the temple, but you were just allowed in this part, the outer part. But if you were a Jew... And you love to worship your God and you brought the sacrifices required, then you were allowed to go in a little bit further, closer to the presence of God. And you could bring your sacrifices and the priest there would perform the rituals and you could worship God. Well, then there was another place, the holy place, where the, the priests would offer their sacrifices and they would bring their rituals and they would bring their offerings but then there was this great curtain that was hung, probably a foot thick, from ceiling to floor and from wall to wall, impenetrable. And it, it sectioned off a place within the temple, the Holy of Holies. It was where the, the most sacred elements of Israel's history were there, the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron's staff, the stone tablets that Moses had inscribed the law of God on. But most importantly, it was where the presence of God was, the Shekinah glory that you read about in the Old Testament. It's where there was continual cloud and fire 
the presence of God was there and it was so holy that no one could go in there. Bar once a year on a holy day, the great high priest could enter there, but only with sacrifices. The writer of the Hebrews says, our hope has entered into the sanctuary behind the curtain. Our hope is now anchored into the accessible presence of God. God has made himself accessible to us. Remember the story as Jesus died? As he uttered the words, it is finished. As the sin of the world was paid for, as redemption occurred, as his righteousness became ours, that curtain tore from top to bottom. Can you imagine being a priest on duty that day? You were there sprinkling something or fixing something and all of a sudden it got dark. You think, gee, it's dark outside. Really dark. And then the sound of 30 centimetres of tightly woven fabric tearing from top to bottom would have filled that room and all of a sudden, maybe for the very first time ever, that priest would have gazed at the one place that they had taught all their life. You cannot enter into the presence of God. You will die. He is holy. We are not. We cannot go there. And yet, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, our hope has entered there. And then he says, Jesus has entered there. Jesus is our hope. That's our hope. Where once the burning holiness of God's presence meant certain death, we now have access to the very heart of God and we can know his embrace without fear of rejection, without fear of destruction. Jesus has become our substitute for sin and death and he is our hope. Jesus is your hope. He is your anchor. Why? The writer says because he has become a high priest forever. Jesus has become that great high priest who enters there on our behalf. Makes a way accessible for us. But then he adds, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's, that's interesting to me, and that's where he's about to go in chapter 7. What can we learn from that? Why was it important for the writer to qualify what he meant by he has become a great high priest for us? He could have finished the sentence there. He could have said... Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever. Full stop. Would have been true. But he adds, according to the order of Melchizedek, he defines something for us which we've got to try and figure out. Why is that important for us to know? And not just know. But how does it connect to our hope? Because that's what he's been talking about. Why is the fact that Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek essential for us to grasp 
this morning? Well, hopefully we can answer some of those questions. Maybe we'll just explore them. Maybe it'll set you on a pathway of more reading. I hope so. More thinking. But whatever it does, my prayer is not that you walk out this morning and say, gee, now I know a lot more about Melchizedek. What I want you to walk out doing this morning is just going, my hope is so more firmly secured in Jesus because he's in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray because I don't have the ability to do that. But God does. Lord Jesus, ground our hope this morning in Christ alone. Secure our hearts to him. Anchor our hope in him because he is our hope. He is our anchor. We thank you that in Christ we can know you and even call you Father this morning. Help us, we pray. We are weak people without you. So strengthen us to hear your voice and follow it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read from Hebrews chapter 7, the first 10 verses. Read along in your Bibles, preferably the one that you're looking at. If you don't have one, you can read along on the screen. Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave him a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command, according to the law, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men will die, men who will die receive a tenth, but in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Lots of tenths in there. This is not going to be a maths class, all right? Let me just try and set some historical context for this so that we can um, not run ahead of where the writer wants us to go. So before we can draw too many conclusions about why the writer draws these connections between hope and Jesus and Melchizedek, let's at least get the story straight in our minds so that we can try to follow his logic here. Because Melchizedek's a pretty obscure reference for us, right? Right? Most of us hear the word Melchizedek and we'll have a couple of responses. One is, sweet mother of Melchizedek, who's that? You know, we, we just don't know. We've, we either haven't heard of him, it may be a vague recollection of a name for us. Um, maybe you've heard of him, but it's confusing. Um, no problem, it is. 
But the original hearers of the letter of the book of Hebrews, that those that received this letter and had it read out or preached in their church, um, they were Hebrews. They were Jewish people primarily. Melchizedek wasn't a mystery to them. Uh, he was a part of their cultural and religious heritage. They were familiar with his story. So we need to make ourselves familiar with the story. So keep your finger in Hebrews or a bookmark. And I want you to flip back to the book of Genesis, which is where you're going to find the original story taking place. Genesis chapter 14, just a really short um, little passage, just to refresh our memories. This is what occurred. The writer of the book of Hebrews is, going to, is referencing this and he's drawing a connection and a point for us so we want to make sure that we're following the story well. Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. This is what they say. After Abram returned from defeating Shadaloma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Sheva Valley, that is, the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God Most High. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Let's draw out a couple of observations from that to help us see why I think the writer has gone all the way back to Genesis to pull out just three verses and drawn it back into Hebrews for us to be able to see the connection between, remember, hope and Jesus and Melchizedek. So, so far in the Genesis account, as we've been reading through the book of Genesis, if you were part of the Bible reading plan and you, you started at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and you've made yourself all the way through to chapter 14, um, one of the key people in the story so far is Abram, or eventually he becomes known as Abraham. He's the founding father of the, patri uh, the patriarch of the nation of Israel. Um, if Jewish people were asked to rank by category, the most important people to their cultural identity and their religious faith, it doesn't matter what category it falls under, Abram, he takes home all the awards, all right? He's the most important person. Abram is the pinnacle of their cultural identity. They call themselves children of what? Children of Abram, all right? That's how they identify themselves. Who are we? We are identified as children of Abram. So far in Genesis, he's the primary character. He's the pinnacle of what it means to identify as an Israelite. But in this account, Genesis 14, even though Abram was the victorious commander of his people, remember, he'd just been out to battle, it said, He's returning home after defeating a sort of an, an alliance of kings from the region. Abram has defeated them. This is the place where people are supposed to come out and defer 
to Abram, to bow down to Abram, to say, Abram, we will bring you gifts. Abram, we will come and say thank you to you because you are our victorious leader. You are our great one. In fact, the Genesis 14 passage has Abram taking his possessions, taking a tenth of all that he had and laying it at Melchizedek's feet. This is highly unusual. This would be a shocking truth for an Israelite to dwell on for too long. Abram doesn't bow to anyone. Everyone else bows to Abram. Genesis provides no additional details about the identity of Melchizedek. It doesn't explain how a Canaanite city king could be a priest of the God Most High, and yet that's how he's described. A nation that was foreign to God, that did not worship God, that did not even acknowledge God as being the one true and living God. They were pagan worshippers, and yet here is this city, the city of Salem, that had a king who was both a king and a priest to the one true God. How come he was there? How did that happen? Genesis doesn't tell us. He doesn't appear in any of the genealogies that you would read through. You know the parts, those of you who are doing the uh, coordinated Bible reading plan, aren't the, aren't the genealogies fun? I've got to admit, I kind of skip a little bit. How come that's the only part that got like a preach or an amen, like so far? (laughs) Melchizedek doesn't turn up in him. He's just this obscure figure that turns up. And yet the writer of the book of Hebrews pulls him out of obscurity and says, no, no, we need to understand something important about him. So, So that's the historical context a little bit. But let's just think a moment about the Hebrews connection. How does the the writer of the book of Hebrews, connect him to this issue of hope and of Jesus. Now remember, that's what, that's what the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to do. That's why we had this mooring post back in chapter 6. We have this hope who is Jesus, who has entered into the, the very presence of God on our behalf, and that's where our hope lies. It's in him now, and he's a high priest forever, just like who? Like Melchizedek. So, so what's the Hebrews connection? Here's a couple of things that I think come out of the way that the writer of the book of Hebrews adds to the story and develops it for us in our understanding. First one's in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 2. The first, well, the first couple of verses of Hebrews 7 are basically just recapping Genesis 14, aren't they? Just doing like a little summary of it, making sure that we're all on the same page. And then we get this information, it's found in verse 2, Hebrews 7. It says, first his name means king of righteousness. So he's defining now the name of Melchizedek. We're going to get the essence of his name. It means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. So here's Melchizedek, his name means King of righteousness and king of peace. Remind you of anybody else? 
should remind you of Jesus. King of righteousness and king of peace. Now, names in the Old Testament are not like the sort of names that we generally do. Um, we had a neighbour when Kath and I didn't have any kids. We were at Bible college together, living in like the married, the married students' quarters. Sounds really wonderful, isn't it? Um, it was just basically a bunch of old rooms with a hallway down the middle. We had a, a neighbour... And she had a little girl. And um, we liked um, her daughter used to come and knock on our door and used to call my wife Fluffy. She couldn't say Kathy. She would say Fluffy. And she would knock on the door at 6.30 in the morning, Fluffy, Fluffy. And uh, we'd invite her in and she'd have breakfast with us. She had a beautiful name. And so we said, if we ever have a daughter, we're going to call our daughter after her. And, um, and Ebony's middle name is named after her. And then we had a son, and we looked up one of those websites. Oh, we like that name. She chose that name. Um, na- names don't have the sort of significance as much today as they used to back in the Bible. In, back into the Old Testament, into the New Testament even, names defined and set the essence of who someone was. And here is the essence of Melchizedek. He is the king of both righteousness and peace. Then as you keep reading, verse 3, we see that his name is really unique. Not only is he the king of righteousness and peace, but it says in chapter 7, verses 3 of Hebrews, that he is without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Melchizedek is unique. The name of Melchizedek um, defines and, and shows us this unique character. He's unique even in his obscurity. For someone so important, we know so little about him. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know what his lineage was. I don't think this means that he didn't have a father or mother or that that he didn't have a day of birth or a day of death. Possibly, it just highlights the fact that, that he was That he was there in the exact moment of history that he was required. He just shows up in the story unexpectedly almost. And it says there that he resembles the Son of God. There are scholars throughout history, because we don't know a lot about this man, who have said maybe, maybe Melchizedek was some sort of pre-incarnate version or example of Jesus himself. That Jesus showed up in the Old Testament. There's some people who have thought that. I'm not sure there's enough information one way or the other to confirm that or deny that. But either way, the book of Hebrews says that Melchizedek resembles, he resembles the Son of God. He shows up in the same fashion. He remains a picture of a perpetual f- priest, one, one who, who represents us to God and God to us. So he's unique. 
And then there's the greatness of his name. Have a look in verse 4. He says, now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his plunder to him. The rest of that passage, all the way down to verse 10, gets a little bit complicated, but it's basically saying all the way through Israelite history, through Hebrew history, once, once um, Abram was in place, once the priesthood was in place, once the Levites were in place, all of religious history of Israel was wrapped up in giving tenths to people, giving a tenth of everything, or first fruits or sacrifices. And the writer says all of that is wrapped up in Abraham and Abram took a tenth of everything and gave it to Melchizedek. His point is Melchizedek is the greater. Melchizedek is the more important. He goes on to to say very clearly, without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. Melchizedek pronounces a blessing on Abram. So what's the Jesus connection? That's where we want to get to. That's where we want to finish. What's the Jesus connection? So here's this obscure king, this priest, Melchizedek. And although he's mysterious and although he's intriguing and though we might have questions about him, he isn't the point of the story. Just like Abram isn't the point of the story. Or David, or Daniel, or Peter, or Paul, or any other Bible character. They're not the point of the story. Jesus is the point of the story. Every time. Jesus is the point. And that's where our mooring post is, right? Hebrews 6, 19 to 20, let's remind ourselves of it. We have this hope. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So let me restate those verses in a way that I think the writer of the book of Hebrews wanted us to hear them. This is the point that he's trying to make. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. And it's firm and it's secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. So far these verses are almost the same. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a foreigner because... Now, this is, this is where I think the writer of the book of Hebrews wants us to grasp these truths. By, by reminding us of Melchizedek, basically this is what he's saying. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a foreigner because of the essence of his name. He is the true king of righteousness. He is the true king of peace. Also because of the uniqueness of his name. Remember these verses? For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
That's the essence and uniqueness of Jesus' name. That's why we can have this hope. That's why he's the anchor for our souls. But also because of the greatness of his name. God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when, when the writer of the book of Hebrews moors our affections and our heart back to that strong foundation of the fact that Jesus is our hope, that Jesus has entered into and made a way possible for us to come into the presence of God, it's because he's elevating the name of Jesus above every other name. He's saying he is a great high priest. Now, there have been some rotten high priests in Israel's history. So he's not just like any high priest. He is a special type of high priest, just like Melchizedek was. What was Melchizedek like? Well, the essence of his name was there, the uniqueness of his name, and the greatness of his name. And Jesus is just like that, but even better, but even better. So here's the question I want to ask you as we finish. What have you moored your life to? Or to use the language of Hebrews, where have you anchored your life? What harbours do you run to when the storm comes? To whom? Or maybe we should say, to what do you run to in times of hardship or struggle? Can you put an image to hope? When we speak about hope, what comes to mind? Your only hope is Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't loom over you like a shadow. Maybe some of you have had that image of Jesus in the past. So this domineering older brother. He doesn't loom over you like a shadow. He, he isn't walking down the hallway like a disappointed parent. Had that a few times. Heard my mother say, go to your room. You wait till your father gets home. I can pretty much quote that verbatim, actually. I heard it so many times. Maybe you did. Maybe you have. And sometimes I think that we start to transfer some of those experiences of life and we start to put them onto God and we say, God's a bit like that. He's disappointed in me. Maybe you feel like you're sitting in your room waiting for the discipline to come. 
He isn't walking down the hallway like a disappointed parent. I want you to know this morning that in Jesus, you will never be pushed away. You will never be rejected. In Jesus, your shame is never too great to bear. In Jesus, your past is never too great a burden to bear. Your only hope is Jesus. And the invitation is to come to him and come to him even now. To cry out to him. And he will never disappoint you. Never. Because we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. And it's firm and it is secure and it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. And Jesus has entered there on your behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever. Just like Melchizedek was. So find your hope in him.